The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. We're live from London and Milan this morning. These are your headlines. Unicredit's third quarter results just hitting the wires. We will bring you all the details and stay tuned for our first on interview with the CEO, Andrea Archel. That is at 800 CET Milan. On Bear's retreat, a billionaire investor, Bill Ackman, pulls the plug on his short position, while Bond King, Bill Gross, swoops up short-dated interest rate futures as the pair signal concern over the health of the U.S. economy. Hamas releases two more Israeli hostages, while French President Emmanuel Macron arrives in Tel Aviv as diplomatic efforts to contain the conflict step up. Chevron moving in on Hess in a $53 billion all-stock deal, raising its rivalry with Exxon in the second major oil mega-deal this month. Chevron boss Mike Worth telling CNBC it's a boost for the industry. We need to uh, operate in the world that we live in, and that is one that still needs oil and gas delivered by uh, responsible producers. This is a fantastic, exciting deal for us. It's about long-term growth, it's about long-term value, and a continuing commitment to a lower carbon energy system. Logitech's second quarter sales dropping as the computer parts maker struggles to hold on to gains made during the pandemic. Numbers crossing this morning from Unicredit. Uh, this is for the third quarter and the first line on the tape, a net profit at 2.32 billion euros. This is versus a, a lower average company provided consensus of 1.93 billion. So topping out on that metric. In terms of net income, this is a hit the tape at 2.3 billion. The ROTE, 18.3%. So fairly high levels on the ROTE, uh, just shy of the 20% mark as we talk about 18.3%. In terms of revenue for that third quarter, 5.97 billion versus an IBS estimate for 5.74. So it is again above that estimate. In terms of what we've got uh, on that company provided consensus number of 5.74, this number is certainly beat at the 5.97 level. The net interest income, and don't forget net interest has been very much a feature of the bank earnings on the back of the higher interest rates we're seeing globally. 3.6 billion versus 3.5 billion in uh, company provided consensus again. So these metrics are stronger than what we were expecting in terms of CET1 ratio at 17.19% at the end of September. The other numbers, net fees, they have crossed to 1.77 billion versus a high number that was anticipated, 1.84 billion. So a little bit light on, on those net fees, but don't forget uh, the environment around banking has been somewhat contained. The gross non, uh, non-performing exposure ratio, so as we start talking about uh, non-performing loans here, that is at uh, 2.7%. Loan write-downs of 135 million euros versus 280 million seen in consensus. So those write-downs are slimmer 
than was slated by this uh, consensus report that was uh, provided by the company in terms of net revenue for 2023. This is the forecasting line here. 22.2 billion euros versus previous guidance of above 21.5 billion. So it is guiding slightly higher than the market was expecting when it comes to the net profit guidance for 2024, at least 7.25 billion euros shareholder distribution of at least 6.5 billion so those are the metrics to give us some context here let's get out to jamana for more jamana you've been looking at the company a lot over recent mm. quarters this one we knew that there'd be a, a net interest income feature given higher rates what do you make of the numbers that i've just uh, communicated here mm-hmm Well, Karen, on first glance, I would say that they've managed to beat on every single metric once again. They beat on the top line, on the bottom line, on net interest income, also on the guidance as well, which I think is interesting. Many people were going into today with the question, well, we kind of know that the momentum has been in their favor because of where interest rates are and because they've benefited, of course, from net interest income, net interest margins expanding. But what about the outlook for next year? And so I think the fact that they've actually marginally upgraded their revenue outlook is is a very strong signal to investors. Remember, one of Unicredit's appeal to the investment community is they've been so strong on share buybacks, share distributions. Again, that is a big cornerstone of what we've got out of today. Their CET1 ratio is still sitting above 17%, tells you that the capital is definitely there. But here's the thing. So I was here three months ago, and I remember three months ago we were saying the stock was one of the best performing stocks in the stock 600. It was up 70%. Look at where we are today. It hasn't really moved. The stock is exactly where it was three months ago. And why? Well, we spent a lot of time talking about this on the show the last couple of months, but that was because of the introduction of this Italian banking tax. It took a lot of the Italian banks by surprise. Of course, we know that the government had to eventually water it down. And um, the CEO himself, Andrea Arcel, was quoted just a couple of weeks ago saying it's not going to have that much of an impact on their bottom line, but the bank took a sentiment hit. And I think this is the issue here. And obviously, it's something that he was going to be unhappy with. And a question that I will put to him when I sit down with him, the overall impact of this banking tax, even though it's not going to hit their bottom line, ultimately, it has hit the ability for the stock to keep climbing higher. So that's something to bear in mind. The other thing that I would say, and this was interesting news that came out yesterday, and it sort of ties back to their very strong capital position. For almost a year now, rumors have been swirling, circulation swirling about Unicredit's next move. Are they going to acquire a domestic bank? Are they going to start looking overseas? Well, we found out yesterday that they've made a proposal to buy up to 9% a stake in Alpha Bank, the Greek bank. Still needs to be approved by the Hellenic Stability Fund. But uh, I think that is quite interesting because, number one, it tells you that Unicredits are looking outside their own domestic borders for investment opportunities. Uh, and number two, it tells you that they're finally now willing to deploy the capital in ventures outside of just buying back their own shares. So very interesting perspective there. And of course, I will be speaking to the CEO, Andrea Archel, about that and whether, you know, as an investment community, it's right to start expecting that they start being um, slightly more adventurous with what they're planning on doing with that healthy CET1 ratio. Uh, but overall, though, I would say the set of numbers, very, very strong, guidance strong, net interest income, about 60% of their total revenues anyway, continues to be a, a bright spot. Will that continue? We've got the pressure from the banking tax. We've got the possibility of ECB cutting rates next year. So some people are saying that this easy money, the days of easy money for some of these more uh, corporate retail geared banks are over. Today, though, the results are still strong.
Excellent stuff. Thank you very much indeed for your coverage uh, of that. And of course, looking forward to your interview, which comes up in 53 minutes time. Uh, I'll just whiz through Novartis. I think there's, there's good and bad in there. There's an increase in net debt that might not necessarily um, be to the favour of investors. As of the 30th of September, net debt, uh, excluding debt related to continued operations, increased to $10.8 billion uh, from the previous $7.2 billion. So there might be a few questions about that. It was partially offset by $11 billion of free cash flow. But there is uh, an improvement in the guidance on sales, though, as well. Guidance raised for core operating income as well, based on strong momentum. Uh, strong nine-month performance with sales growing 10% at constant currency, up 8%. Core operating income was up 19%, at, up 13 at constant currency as well. So um, again, the uh, operating income improvement there. Uh, net sales now expected to grow high single digits. So um, just a little bit of question mark about the debt scenario and why that has gone up so aggressively as well. Um, just a quick look at the share performance as well. They are uh, so far this year up, well, potentially 666, 6.66% they're up, uh, sitting towards the top end of their 12-month range. And I'll just give you a little bit of context. Why not? The stock trades at 13.6 times forward, which is uh, solidly towards the uh, higher than the middle end of the, the current range as well across the broader sector as well. Um, did you want to say something about the a bit of window dressing too around Sandos. Of course, yes. we were talking to Vaz Narasimhan a long time about the Sandos spin-off and we saw it in the quarter. So a little bit of window dressing there that uh, there will be a part of a Q4 discontinued operations number, a result of one-time non-cash, non-taxable IFRS gain of 5.9 billion US dollars. So some, some real just tidying up around that uh, spin-off of the business. Super. Um, well, why don't I tell you what we'll do? We'll stay in the sector because we're going to speak to the AstraZeneca CEO, Pascal Sorio, uh, later this morning. Now, that interview will come up. Uh, let's do that at uh, 7.30 local, 8.30 Central European time. That is a first on CNBC. Arabile. Well, let's give you up what's coming up on the show then. Bill Ackman revisiting his short position on long-duration U.S. paper, while Bill Gross reveals his taking a position at the short end of the curve. We'll discuss all of that. Plus, Microsoft and Alphabet kick off the quarter's big tech earnings, with investors hoping strong results out of Silicon Valley could be the spark for a rebound in equity markets. And Unicredit posting that better-than-expected quarterly net profit of 2.3 billion euros. We'll be hearing from the CEO, that's Andrea Ocel, that's at 8 o'clock CET. Stay tuned. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Um, there are some bits of uh, investor activity that, that, that are more interesting than others. Let's be brutally honest about it. And I think when Bill Ackman unwinds his short position in long-term treasuries, it is certainly worth uh, a bit of time and a bit of note. So he said that there is now too much risk in the world and that the economy is slowing 
faster than feared. Now, Mr. Ackman first revealed uh, in August he was bearish on the U.S. 30-year paper, saying then that structural changes would see the Fed keep its benchmark rate higher for longer. However, he now says he expects investors to buy into bonds again as a safe haven. Uh, I do want to ask Karen about this in a few moments' time. But similarly, investor Bill Gross uh, signalled he's buying short-dated interest rate futures, uh, which will pay out if short-duration Treasury yields come off, i.e. rise, the underlying as well. Uh, and uh, our, our wonderful producer, David, um, despite his lack of sleep with his young child, uh, managed to come up with the, uh, the, the strap line, bills, 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 as in T-bills, Bill Ackman and Bill Gross. So four marks to a man who's had no sleep but coming up with some witticisms. But, Karen, I think this is unbelievably fascinating because... When Bill Ackman talks about structural problems, he, he, he's talking, of course, about concerns about the economy as well. And, and we had a terrific interview, and it's on CNBC.com, and you can have a look at this as well, uh, about his rationale and his concerns about what's going on in the world. He's been pretty vocal about what's been going on in the Middle East as well. But there is a, another structural trend, which I would be fascinating to pour through with, with investors and our next guests as well, about the structural problems in the bond market and the, and the deficits in the United States and the quantitative tightening and what that could mean in the opposite direction for bonds as well. Because, of course, he's looking at the economy and saying, hey, we just need to own a bit of safety here and I'm going to close my short bet. It's been a great bet. But what about the structural problems in the bond market the other way as well? So I think it's, it's a delicious trade and it's definitely worth noting yeah. with our guests coming up. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? Because we've been looking at the US 10-year yield close to 5% for the last number of sessions despite huge amount of geopolitical risk that's been unfolding. Typically that bid for safety would bring that yield lower but it hasn't happened in this window of time which makes you wonder is it structural issues how the US pays for its debt amount of supply coming to the marketplace whether it's those structural problems now that's put uh, the support or the prop underneath this yield in the United States. So there's been a lot of commentary on the channel that uh, the bond sell-off has been overdone some of the market participants are repositioning around that but it is a conundrum how long does this structural issue remain a feature of the markets? In terms of what we've had on some of the price action, that uh, 10-year yield briefly above 5% in session yesterday. You can see it flipping lower to the 4.84. So quite a bit of movement again in a safe haven trade. Uh, the short end, 5.06. But uh, it is closely being eyed in terms of what the growth profile is going to look like this week. We just heard commentary about uh, whether we're looking at a recession now in the fourth quarter. It's going to be quite key to judge those numbers on GDP as they cross for uh, this week. 4.3% thought to be the level for the third quarter could have some impact on what seems to be a somewhat jumpy treasury curve at this point. So uh, let's just take a look at what happens to that. But again, the split, we've got this uh, high yield at the short end versus the, the long end, that inverted yield curve, so to speak, where you're not getting paid for duration still at this stage. And uh, I think uh, that's been one of the big drivers for the market, Steve. You've seen very much of the price action around what you're seeing on that Treasury market. Right, let's get another view on this. Anika Gupta is, of course, Director of Macroeconomic Research at Wisdom Tree. Anika, really lovely to see you. Look, I don't know how much of our conversation you heard about our pontification and rumination over the bond market as well. But Bill Ackman's got a lot of people talking about bets on there. And it is incredibly volatile at the moment, which is, again, not... Um, not aligned with the long-term view that bonds are a safe haven as well. Just, just I guess, give us your holistic view of investing in, in treasuries at the moment, investing in bond markets and, and the safety of doing that. Good morning to you. A very good morning, Steve. Yes, um, you know, it's been quite a turbulent time in bond markets. We've had uh, three successive years of losses. Um, and I think facing with 
what the market is facing today is they're beginning to digest the higher for longer narrative. And that really uh, came to fruition just after the last uh, FOMC meeting that took place, where we saw the dot plot actually being revised with 2024 and 2025 now indicating, uh, you know, 50 basis points uh, worth of rate hikes in the upcoming next two years. Now, uh, since then, we've also had a raft of U.S. economic data that's been a lot more positive. And we've also had an escalation of a war between Hamas and Israel. And that's all also been dominating sentiment on markets because uh, the escalation of the war does present a dilemma for central banks. On the one hand, uh, you know, it results, it feeds into higher oil prices that feed into high inflation expectations that really keep the market very tense on uh, the fact that the central banks still would not yet have finished their tightening cycle. At the same time, since monetary policy is so tight, uh, you know, and, and investors' purse strings are, are, you know, quite tight as well, it also places a lot more pressure and ability for investors to actually spend. And hence, it could lower economic activity going forward. So as of now, I think markets still have further to digest this ha narrative of, of higher for longer rates. And that is why we are likely to see, um, you know, the further reinversion um, you know, for the steepening of the curve, and uh, that's going to weigh on sentiment. So for now, we think, um, you know, the the opportunity does certainly lie on the equity market. Uh, we've seen equity valuations really being stretched uh, as uh, bond yields have head, headed a lot higher. Um, and there is still more for that to go. But once we start seeing that turning, I think it will alleviate some of that pressure on it, on the equity side as well. Anika, the pushback coming through from Bill Gross saying, look, this higher for longer stories yesterday's mantra. You've got uh, potentially a recession coming in the fourth quarter. What do you make of that fairly downbeat scenario? It, it's 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 going to be very important, Karen, for that to actually play out, to put an end to this narrative. Um, the reason why we have had the higher for not longer narrative uh, actually being played out in the market is because of the stronger economic data. If we do arrive at that Q4 pothole where economic data starts to deteriorate, that's when we'll start to see, um, you know, that's when we'll start to see rate cuts beginning to be priced in by central banks. I mean, take, for example, the ECB, um, you know, we have this meeting coming up this week and they are going to continue to state that they are hellbent on the higher for longer narrative. But if you look at market expectations, we're looking at nearly 70 basis points of price cuts for 2024 and another 40 basis of price cuts for 2025. Anika, we've been talking about this long-term yield and whether we're looking at stubbornly high yields from here. The variety of factors pointed out by Bill Ackman overnight. So deglobalization, high defense spending, energy transition, growing entitlement, and also workers having more bargaining power at this stage. That's just one feature. Yeah. The other feature has been the amount of supply coming into the market and whether the US can pay for its debts and whether that yield gets repriced higher for the long term. Put all this together, do you think we are actually looking at this big prop that remains under that US 10-year Treasury yield? Absolutely, Karen. Uh, you know, we, we do feel that, uh, you know, things have changed since the COVID pandemic. I think a big mistake that investors are making is, is that they're anchoring uh, today's 2023 scenario uh, to 2007, uh, you know, to, to all the way down to 2020. And we, we should not do that. I think since we've reopened from the COVID pandemic, a lot has changed. As you've highlighted, 
Um, you know, we have the energy transition underway. We've had a Russia-Ukraine war, which has made the energy transition even more important. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, supply chains now, uh, an onshoring, uh, you know, scenario come in, come about by various countries because they want to avoid these supply bottlenecks that took place during the COVID pandemic. And all of these factors together um, are likely to re result in a, you know, a higher inflationary scenario, which is likely to put pressure on central banks. So we do expect yields to, you know, trend higher. Anika, we've got to leave it there, but look, lovely to see you. And we look forward to seeing you around the desk again soon. Thank you very much indeed for, uh, My pleasure. for, for the early start and early coverage today as well. Anika Gupta, who is Director of Macroeconomic Research at Wisdom Tree. Absolutely mega deals going on in the oil sector, in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, US oil giant Chevron is set to buy a smaller rival, Hess, a $53 billion all stock deal. The agreement will give Chevron a 30% stake in a key oil field in Guyana. It's offshore. It's deep water. It's where um, Chevron didn't have the same kind of expertise as some of its rivals. And now, in addition, though, it will increase its presence in, of course, U.S. shale. The move is the second major M&A announcement in the sector in the last two weeks after ExxonMobil's uh, deal to buy Pioneer for almost $60 billion. Our U.S. colleagues uh, spoke to both companies and got their views on the deal. This extends our visible growth profile into the 2030s. Uh, we've got leading shareholder distributions. Our uh, dividend growth has been 6% uh, per year over the last five years, double that of our nearest peer. We announced uh, the intent to grow our, raise our dividend at 8% in the first quarter of next year, increase our share buyback to $20 billion a year. We're returning cash to shareholders and still see relatively low multiples compared to the rest of the market. So Absolutely. we think there's a lot of upside. Hess brings growth to Chevron, growth in resource, growth in production, growth in cash flow, and Chevron brings us financial strength. Financial strength in terms of a strong balance sheet, a diversified portfolio of assets, and industry-leading cash returns. So this strategic combination uh, really builds and creates the premier oil and gas company positioned for the energy transition. Um, so much to say. Um, I let's, let's start off. It's an all-cash deal as well, so um, a big bond, all-shares deal, so no problem about raising money at higher levels for financing the sector. The fact that U.S. Shell still has attraction for buyers, of course, as we've seen with the majors, the Exxon, the Chevrolet, that's very interesting as well, given the fact the optimization of a lot of these wells was seen as, uh, as, as lowering very aggressively uh, as Shell became more developed and more mature, so that's interesting. The fact that they are investing, just by and large, once again, U.S. majors in hydrocarbons, flying in the face of what a lot of uh, people are doing in Europe, the Totals, the Shells, the BPs, and such as well, uh, and also, of course, the concern from the IEA that we're going to peak in terms of demand very, very soon. Um, they clearly believe in the US that that's not necessarily the case. And I'll make one more point as well, which I haven't seen written anywhere yet as well. This is once again another energy security story for the US, given the turmoil, the tumult we're seeing in the Middle East. Well, we did hear that some of the major states would be interested in making a deal, but we thought, and this was from, from City several months ago, that it could be some of the European players that would target. But to your point, domestic deals it is. And if you look at uh, Chevron buying Hess, Exxon going after the Permian giant Pioneer Natural Resources, Devon Energy apparently looking at Marathon Oil or Crown Rock, and you've also got Chesapeake Energy uh, considering acquisition of Southwestern Energy. So that's a lot of deals when we talk about a market where there are not many deals taking place. That's a, essentially a ton of them really in just in one sector. What's been jumping out is that it's the large producers, the large players that the big fund managers are interested in. So the deal making, quite fascinating, is about that uh, race for the size. And there is a 
view that there isn't that much interest in the wide pool of assets because we're still talking about energy transition. So those large managers are placing their bets uh, on those particular large players. So what, 40% to 53% is uh, the holdings that you've seen all of those large fund managers in US energy companies in the second quarter. So an increase in contrast to this whole energy transition ESG story we've been talking about. You've actually seen funds ramp up their holdings in the major oil players in the States. On the other side, what ESG funds, another big quarter of outflows in the third quarter, uh, 2.7 billion was the extent that they fell. So it's fascinating to see those bets on an old sector. The other big point is just the valuation gap that has now emerged between some of the, the smaller producers and the larger producers. There's an index that well, tracks the larger producers. I, I will 44% higher than now the smaller index and of producers. And that is fascinating because you've actually touched upon something I was going to raise, which is the valuation premium that those majors you just mentioned have to their European peers. Um, the Let me get this right. Chevron and Exxon trade roughly on 11 times forward, 11, 11 and a half times forward, which is lower, of course, than the broader valuation for S&P stocks. The European majors, the Totals, the BPs of this world, trade on about six and a half times forward. So a massive premium in terms of valuation for what are all IOCs, or IECs, they call themselves now. Yeah. The new acronym is International Energy Companies rather than International Oil Companies. Fascinating that they're doubling down on, on a lot of the assets that have traded at a premium, that have made them trade at a premium as well. And they're doing it under a Biden administration, which is also interesting. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.